Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Today, we are wrapping up a five-week series we've been in called Waymaker. And you've probably heard that term Waymaker if you listen to Christian radio. There's a song out called Waymaker right now. And it says that our God is a Waymaker. He's a miracle worker. He's a promise keeper. He is a light in the darkness. And each week, what we've been doing is we've been opening up the Bible and saying, what is it that we can learn about Jesus? And so we've been jumping into these Jesus stories and there's some hopeless situations, places and times where it doesn't seem like there's a way for these people to move forward in life. It seems like they've just been dealt a hand and they're gonna have to play it out for the rest of their life. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he does what no doctor could do. He does what no surgeon could do. He does what no therapist could do. He does what prescription drugs couldn't do and even what non-prescription drugs couldn't do. He shows up and he makes a way where there was no way. And so in our first week, we read about this man who had been lame from birth. He'd never been able to walk, but he encountered Jesus and all of a sudden he could walk. The next week we looked at a guy who was blind from birth and he met Jesus and all of a sudden his eyes were opened and he could see. We had this woman that we encountered who had this issue for 12 years, 12 years of suffering. That's a long time. And she finally reached out to Jesus and her healing came. Last week, we talked about uh, some other guys, these, these lepers, these people who had these skin diseases in a different culture and a different time in which they were kind of put on the outside. They were unclean. They became untouchables. They became people that were not allowed in society anymore. It was like true quarantining because they didn't know what the disease was at that time, but you just got to be outside the camp unless it gets healed and nobody ever got healed. And they would just live in isolation in these leper communities until Jesus shows up on the scene and he changes the narrative. He flips it on its head. He provides a way for these lepers to not only receive physical healing, but to be welcomed back into society and to be able to be welcomed back into their families and to have life. And I think the ultimate thing that we find as we read each of these stories of Jesus is that he is not just providing physical healing, but he is healing them emotionally, He's restoring them relationally. He is saving them on the inside in their soul, in their spirit, and he is providing new life to them. And so the good news for you and I is that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter what your situation, no matter what your past, no matter what you've gone through, even if it seems like there's no way forward and you feel like this is just the hand you have to be dealt, I just wanna let you know that there's a God who loves you. He loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you where you're at. He'll meet you there, but he wants to lead you into new life. And so today we're going to look at another one of these stories. I'm so excited to to look at this. And, And this is going to be kind of an unlikely healing. It's not one that we would have anticipated, not one that we would have seen coming. Um, in this last healing that we want to talk about, the story of Jesus showing up and making a way is one of the last physical healings that Jesus performs before he goes to the cross, before it is that he is crucified. And today, as we've been talking about, is what? Today is Palm Sunday, all right? And so Palm Sunday is is the beginning of what is known as Holy Week, that this is the week leading up to Jesus 
death, his crucifixion. With that's gonna come the betrayal of Judas. He's going to be arrested. He's gonna be tried. There's gonna be Pilate. There's gonna be these different scenes. And then we're gonna end up on Saturday in which he is in the grave. Black Saturday, they sometimes refer to it as. But we all know the end of the story, Resurrection Sunday, Easter comes and Jesus comes back from the grave. And so on Palm Sunday, we're celebrating this idea that Jesus is coming into the capital city of Jerusalem and he's riding a donkey. And this would have been normal for, for leaders of that time when everything was at peace. If it was a wartime, Jesus might've been coming in on a war horse with a sword to conquer, to come in with power, to come in with violence and to overthrow. But he didn't, he came in in a peacetime, riding a donkey and the people were all there. And we sung it this morning. They were all saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. It was this exclamation of praise, like, yes, Hosanna, save us now. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. If Jesus came in here now, some of you might be in your soul saying, Hosanna. Like, would you save me from my situation? My situation doesn't look very good. I'm not sure how it's gonna move forward. I don't know about the political climate of the United States of America. Lord, save us now, please. I don't wanna watch another news report. Save us now, not another election year. Lord, Hosanna, please save us now. So everybody is celebrating him. They're, they're excited. He's gonna be the new king. He's gonna bring peace. The thing that every beauty queen has ever asked for, peace on earth, he's gonna bring it. It's gonna happen. And so they're so excited. They're taking their cloaks off, their jackets. They're laying them down. They're trying to create like this red carpet experience for Jesus as he comes in. They didn't have a coat. All right, they're grabbing palm branches off of trees and they're gonna cover the ground so that he comes in in this red carpet experience. And in churches right now, all across the United States and really across the world, a lot of churches, what they do is they have palm branches and they would give each one of you a palm branch to remember this day, to remember what it is. And sometimes people would take those home and they'd set them by their Bible so that they would remember who Jesus is, Hosanna, that he can save us now. But if you're in the Catholic church, the priest blessed those and that means they're super special. And so then what's gonna happen is you would get them, but then you're gonna return them to the church. And traditionally, you know what they would do with those palm branches when they returned to them? They would actually burn them and they would make the ashes and they would collect the ashes and they would save the ashes until next year on Ash Wednesday. And so now I have to tell you a story about being seven years old in JCPenney. <laughs> because I grew up in church and as a lot of you know, my dad's the pastor uh, of this church. He founded this church back in the, the late 80s. And so I'm, I'm a PK, like I know how church stuff works. And so my dad during that time, he was always talking about how if you love someone, and I don't know where this phrase comes from, but if you love someone and they have egg on their face, you'll tell them that they have egg on their face. And so I'm like, you know, seven years old and I'm trying to soak this in. And I don't know if there's a deeper meaning to egg on your face or if he's literally talking about egg on your face. But the idea was that if you have someone you know and they have egg on their face, the loving thing to do is to say, hey man, you got egg on your face. It would be unloving to not say it and then let them go through their whole day and encounter people and everybody be like, they got something on their face and you didn't say anything. That would not be loving. It's kind of like when a, a gentleman that you know has their fly open. You want to let them know so that they don't go through life and people, you know, judging that. So I'm seven years old. I'm with my mom. We at the JCPenney. It's time to get some clothes. And uh, I didn't know this, but it was Ash Wednesday. And it was my first encounter with a grown adult with, 
in my eyes, it was egg on their face, something on their forehead. They had these ashes in the sign of a cross. And I felt this compulsion in me because I'm a pastor's kid and I want to love people like my daddy said. And I felt like I should tell this person in case they didn't know that they had a little, a little something on their face. And so I didn't know at seven, you know, how do you talk to an adult like that? But then I was like, no worries. I got a professional Christian with me. <laughs> the pastor's wife. My mom is here and she will surely, example for me, how you tell somebody that they got something on their face. And so I watched and I saw my mom see the person and I saw my mom do nothing. And I started questioning my mom's love for Jesus <laughs> and for other people. And so I said, mom, did you not see that there was something on that guy's face? Like, did you not see it? Like, why didn't you say something? And my mom knew something I didn't know because my mom grew up Catholic. She said, son, it's Ash Wednesday. And I said, what is that? And you know what my mom said? I don't know. I don't remember what she said, but she had some answer for me. And I didn't know what Ash Wednesday was because I never celebrated Ash Wednesday. But I'm here today as your pastor to let you know what Ash Wednesday is all about because I'm just that kind of guy. So Ash Wednesday, and if you grew up Catholic, you've experienced this, Ash Wednesday, it actually kicks off what is known as Lent, which is where normally people give something up in remembrance of, of God, and they're, gonna, they're preparing for this Lent season, and it's going to happen all the way until Good Friday. So, you know, this Friday, Catholics are free. They get to eat the fish again. They get to get whatever they gave up back. And so it's a season of, of withdrawing from things in order to focus on Christ. And on Ash Wednesday, it kicks off this Lent season and they do this uh, where they go to the church and they take the palm branches that have been burned up and they take the ashes and they place them on their forehead. Why do they do this? Well, it's because the ashes are symbolic of some things. Uh, and when we look in the Bible, we see over and over that ashes speak of two things. Number one, they speak of repentance. And number two, they speak of mortality. See, in the Bible, we often read this thing that there was a repenting of people, that they were going one direction and they turned this other way and they repented with sackcloth, which is uh, this fabric that was kind of itchy, and then they would throw ashes on their head. It was, it was this idea of grieving and repenting, and they would cover themselves in ashes as a public expression of the inner state they were in. But also ashes remind us of mortality, and if you've ever been to a graveside ceremony after a funeral, you may have heard the, the minister say these words, we, we therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, which is based upon what we read in Genesis 3.19, where God says, for you were made from dust and dust you shall return. So Ash Wednesday, as we apply these ashes, it's an idea that you are not to live for yourself that you're to turn your heart towards God, but secondly, that you're not gonna live forever. It's a reminder that you are but ashes and dust, and one day you will return to your original state. And so we're coming full circle. Before there were ashes, there were these palm branches. They were laid down on the ground to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all the people were shouting, Hosanna, save us now. And so today, Holy Week begins. On Thursday, you know what Thursday is called? It's called Maundy Thursday. 
It's a time that we remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Mondi's just the, a word that actually refers to a ceremonial washing of feet. On Good Friday, we remember Jesus suffering and his death on a cross. Black Saturday, his body's laid in a grave and all of the disciples and people followed him or they're grieving. But during that time of grief on the earth, Jesus was active. He was busy. He wasn't just sleeping. He actually descended to the place of the dead. And there he was setting the captives free, conquering death. And on Easter Sunday, resurrection day, Jesus was alive. And next week, we're gonna celebrate the fact that we serve a risen savior. But today, we gotta wrap up Waymaker. And today, we're gonna look at a story that would have happened on Maundy Thursday. It was the day that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It's also the day that the disciples enjoyed the Passover meal together, the last supper in this upper room. But it's also the day that really changed everything. It's the day that Judas betrayed Jesus, that Jesus was arrested and taken as a prisoner and accused of crimes deserving of death. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up. We're gonna put it on the screen if you didn't bring one or, or you forgot to charge it. Uh, and we're gonna look in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 53. We're gonna read a good portion of scripture here. And then we're gonna see if we can take some things away from this before we end today with communion. Here we go. Chapter 22, verse 39. Then, this is after the last supper, after dinner, Accompanied by his disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, his disciples, pray that you will not give into temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up, get up, wake up and pray so that you will not give into temptation. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached led by Judas. One of the 12 disciples, Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of man? with a kiss? Well, when the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. This is the first account of an encounter with the government. I'm not going to comply. I defy, but we will move on. Verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests 
the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. All right, we're going to stop reading right there. This is, this, is a, this is a great chapter. I'd encourage you to read all of it. In the Bible, we see that the life of Jesus is recorded by four different authors. We call these the Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today we're reading in Luke. And, and each of these guys had their account of what happened. And so we find that this Last Supper scene and this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives, they all had their take on it. And so while we just read Luke's, each one of them sometimes has different details, certain things that they saw, certain things that they remembered. And so I like Luke's account, but John, John outlived all of them. And so John's like, I ain't protecting anybody anymore. So when it came to Matthew, when it came to Mark, when it came to Luke, they just said that one of the disciples pulled the sword out. But John's like, I was there. I know who pulled the sword out. And I'm going to tell y'all, it wasn't Thomas. <laughs> it was Peter. And so he just flat out names it. He's like, no, it was Peter who pulled that sword out. Like, of course, you would have guessed it anyway, but it was Peter. And, and not only does John give us this extra bit of information that it was Peter who he had a great relationship with, um, but it was also in the account of John that we find out that this high priest slave whose ear was cut off had a name. And his name was Malchus, which is not a name that we use anymore. M-A-L-C-H-U-S. So as we investigate this story, there's a few things I think we should take away. Number one, Jesus tells his disciples to pray. And I think that was something not just for 2,000 years ago with a group of guys in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's something for you and I if we call ourselves disciples. Jesus tells his disciples to pray. We read in Luke 22:39 that after dinner, accompanied by his disciples, they left the upper stairs room and, and they went as usual to the Mount of Olives. And there, what did he tell them? Pray that you will not give into temptation. Was this the first time that he had told them this? No, you guys, some of you remember the Lord's prayer. Remember the disciples say, hey, how can we pray? He's like, I'll tell you how to pray. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And here we go, lead us not into temptation. So this isn't the first time that Jesus has encouraged them and taught them that way they should pray that they won't give into temptation. And this is a command. He didn't say, hey, I just, you know, if you guys aren't tired, I would suggest that you make some space tonight and pray. No, pray. <laughs> Pray that you will not give in to temptation. In other words, temptation's coming, y'all. You ought to pray so you don't give in. Like, I know it's around the corner. You don't feel it right now. You don't feel the sense and the need of the temptation, but there is a hard time coming. I see it coming. I know it's coming. Pray that you don't give in when the temptation shows up. If you're dealing with temptation, prayer is important because when you pray, it connects you to an all-powerful way-making God. You can't overcome it in your own, but when I pray, it connects me to the person who has more power than whatever my wrong desire is. Christ who lives in me is stronger than my wrong desires, and I have to rely on that power in order to overcome. 
And sometimes people are like, well, you know, temptation's coming, Jesus knows it's coming, and Jesus knows I'm just gonna give in. But wait a second, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation, that's in like no temptation, not like some, a little, no, no. No temptation has overtaken you. No temptation has seized you except what's common to mankind. Whatever you're going through, you're not the first one to go through it. And listen, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Well, but, but Pastor Alex, you don't know. I just could, I couldn't stop. Well, you, you, you missed your exit. There was an exit provided. Look at this. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So when the temptation comes, God is always faithful. He loves you so much. He's not going to be like, yep, you're screwed. You're going to give into it. Deal with the consequences. No, he's saying, hey, pray that you don't give into temptation. I'm going to provide a way of escape. You need to be alert and tuned into me so you don't miss it. So I think number one, we can take from this that Jesus tells his disciples to pray but I also think we cannot avoid this. And this is such a hard point. And we're going to say it in church and it's going to affect you. It's going to affect me. But number two, Jesus's people are not perfect. <sighs> Jesus' people ain't perfect. As we go on our story, we, we find this disciple who drew his sword, our main man, Peter. Man, Peter really helps us to remember that following Jesus is a process of development. We're not immediately transformed in every way. Yes, our identity has changed. Yes, we're adopted into the family of Christ, but there is a process of changing how we think, a process of changing how we act, a process of breaking habits. It doesn't happen immediately. And, 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 and Peter here helps us to know that no matter how long you've been following Jesus, you still screw up. This is Peter. I don't know if you know about Peter. Peter was a guy when Jesus is walking on water, who's like, hey, can I walk out there with you? And Jesus is like, sure. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water. That's Peter. Peter's the guy when there's a girl who's dead, Jesus says, I want everybody to get away. Peter, come on, James, John, come on. And he watches Jesus raise somebody to life. At one point in time, he says, Lazarus, come for Peter's right there. One time he's on top of a mountain. Jesus starts glowing. Peter's right there. He's like, oh my goodness, this is so awesome. Let's just live here forever. This is Peter. And Peter, after following Jesus for three years of his life, seeing him do miracle after miracle after miracle, he knows what Jesus can do. He screws up. He says, you know what? Let's fight. <laughs> I, I don't know if Jesus ever rolled his eyes, but if he did, I bet it was with Peter. Like, oh my goodness, you gotta be kidding me right now. What did we talk about around the fire last night? Like, I just think that there was this, it's a challenge. And even though you've been following Jesus for years, even if you grew up in church, listen, you ain't perfect and you're still gonna screw up. And the challenge is to own it, to not hide it, to not act like it didn't happen. Embrace it, be honest, be real. You cannot change until you embrace truth. And I think sometimes, and, and it frustrates me. I mean, I, I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up, I knew the right thing to do. And when I mess up today, you know how much I want to beat myself up over that and how depressed I want to get? Because I know better and I still mess up. Man, Peter gives me some hope that I'm not alone, that this process is taking time. And it's as I cooperate with my will that God is doing this inward transformation in me. But what's interesting here 
is that although Matthew doesn't say it was Peter who drew his sword, he does uh, call something out. And so when we look in Matthew's account, so right, we looked in Luke's, but Matthew says this earlier in the story. He says that then he returned to the disciples, Jesus did, and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Matthew just goes ahead and makes sure everybody knows that Peter was a sleeper. Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep, watch, and pray so that you will not give into temptation. Peter, don't give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Matthew makes it clear that Peter was a sleeper. And why is that a problem? Because their prayer was so that they wouldn't give into temptation. And Peter didn't pray. And you know what Peter did? He gave into temptation. The thing that Jesus was trying to stop and prevent in his life, he failed to do. And so the consequence was he gave in to temptation. And in fact, every one of the disciples did that night. The only one who had prayed was Jesus. And he was the only one who stayed strong during the next few hours of his life. What's the temptation? What's the temptation that Peter gave into? I think part of it is that he tried to control the situation. How many control freaks do I have out there? You wanna control the situation. You don't want somebody else to be in charge. You wanna run it. You wanna be there. All right, God, I know what you said, but I got this. Peter somehow or another thought he could help Jesus out. And I think we sometimes get this attitude. Oh, Jesus, this don't look good. It's okay, I'll help you. Let me grab my sword. Let me fight for you. Let me be a crusader. Here we go. I'm going to fight for you, Jesus, because like, you need that. Newsflash, Jesus doesn't need your help. You're not like his little elf. He's not Santa Claus. He doesn't need your help. In Matthew, we read this, that when Jesus corrected Peter, he said, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Pete, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? I don't need you and your sword. I needed you to pray so that in this moment you would do what you're supposed to. Pete, put your sword away. I don't need your help. But here's what's so cool about Jesus. Jesus isn't angry at Peter like I would be. I would be like, I'd have been done with Peter. I don't think Peter would have made it as a disciple for three years. Like he would have been out year one. Like I'll keep your brother, Andrew. He's cool. You're out, man. Like you are drama. But, but, but Jesus did not get angry at Peter. In fact, Jesus loves Peter enough to correct him. This is something I'm trying to teach my boys. See, when I correct my boys, it's not because I'm angry. It's not because I'm mad. It's not because I want to punish him. I correct my boys because I love them. Because the mistake that they made, I don't want them to make in the future. Because if they make this mistake in the future, it's not good for them. And so if I take their little mistake when they're five and seven years old, and I fast forward to when they're 16, that's not going to be good for them. So let's address it now while it's still easy. And so I love you, so I correct you so that you can become the person you're supposed to be. And Jesus has the same attitude towards us. Hebrews 12, seven and eight says, it says, be patient when you're being corrected because this is how God treats his children. Don't all parents correct their children? If they love them, they do. God corrects all his children. And if he doesn't correct you, then guess what? You don't really belong to him. 
When you are with God, you're following or pursuing him, correction's gonna come, not because he's mad, angry, or against you, but because he's for you and he loves you. And not only does Jesus love Peter enough to correct him, but he also protects him. And this here is where the story gets really deep for me because I believe Peter, in, 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 in a phrase, was playing checkers and Jesus was playing chess. Peter was thinking simple, attack. That's about all you can do in checkers, right? There's not a whole lot of defense. It's just we're moving forward. There's no moving backwards unless I'm knighted, right? Here we go. And, and Jesus over here, and he's playing a whole different game. He's looking at things from a whole bigger perspective than old Pete who just woke up, who still got sleep in his eye and a sword in his hand and an ear on the ground. Yeah, two different games. See, Peter responds emotionally. He responds not as Jesus would prefer for him to. He responds out of the flesh and strikes this man. And let's remember the whole crowd they all came with swords. They came with clubs. They came ready for a fight. They outnumber the number of disciples. And now you, Peter, are gonna pull that one sword? Peter, they're gonna kill you. Peter, there ain't gonna be no, there ain't gonna be no grace. They came ready for this. They were all getting amped up at the tavern before they came out here. Like they're gonna get you. And Jesus not only corrects Peter, but out of love for Peter, heals this man, which saves Peter's life. Peter never thought about that. I was just going to defend Jesus. I was going to make sure I didn't deny Jesus. Yeah, Pete, you just, you missed it though. And Jesus, out of his love, protects Peter from the crowd by healing this man. Well, we can't really take Peter on now because what did he do? We cut that guy's ear off. Well, did he though? It's back on his head. Not only does Jesus in this moment protects Peter, but he protects humanity. See, Jesus is going to eventually stand before a court and uh, he's going to be blameless. This was part of the prophecy that he would be blameless, that there would be no guilt in him. I don't know if you know this or not, but like in our own country, there's been court cases recently to determine whether a leader was responsible for an insurrection. And if Peter had cut off this man's ear and began this fight, who do you think they're gonna hold accountable for that? They're gonna hold accountable Jesus because your disciple, Rabbi, acted this way. And I'm sure it's your teaching that led to this. And I'm sure it's your influence that led to this. They would have held Jesus responsible for the violence of this man. And when he stood before Pilate, Pilate would no longer be able to say, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate would have to say, well, there was that ear incident. I do find you guilty. Jesus maintains his blamelessness, guilt-free. He is above accusation. And I think it just goes to show, number three, is that Jesus is a way maker. In a situation in which it looks real grim, these people are coming, they're gonna fight, they're gonna attack. It doesn't seem like there's a way forward. Jesus, somehow or another, makes a way forward to protect Peter and to continue down the path that Jesus wanted that God the Father wanted. He already prayed, God, let this cut pass for me. This could have been an out. He could have just been tried for this violent act against this high priest, but no, he made sure to be able to continue down the path that God the Father went. He's a way maker. 
And while Jesus was definitely functioning on a different level than Peter, Jesus was not acting compulsively. He was not acting out of emotion. But the one thing that bothers me about this story is why Malchus? Why is this guy? He's ear story is being told by all the gospel writers. His name makes the Bible in John's account. And the only reason this guy's in the Bible is because Peter harmed him. That's, that's the only reason. Peter harmed this guy and that's how he made the Bible. And, and it makes it interesting to me that of everyone in the mob that had clubs and swords, why did Peter choose to attack Malchus? Why him? Why not, why not one of the temple guards? Why not one of the people who actually looked like they were there for a fight? Instead of picking someone who had been trained in battle, instead of taking it on, he chose the high priest, Caiaphas's slave. Question, do you think the slave had anything against Jesus? Do you think he was like, I hate Jesus, I'm gonna go, and went and asked permission from Caiaphas to go there? Chances are, he was sent there on assignment by the high priest to assist in this arrest. As I've read commentators and I've read so much about this, most people believe that he was probably unarmed. He was probably there. Remember, this is before, you know, streetlights. He was probably there holding the torch so everybody else could see who's got their swords and ready to fight. You can't really fight well when you got a torch in one hand and a sword in the other. He was probably just helping light the way. And of all the people for Peter to attack, who did he pick? the defenseless one, doesn't have a weapon. He picked the most vulnerable person in the whole group and probably the one guy who was innocent who wasn't even there of his own volition. If that's true, my heart goes out to those who have been abused and hurt by people who claim to follow Jesus. Peter's claiming to follow Jesus and he's attacking and hurting others. And if you have been hurt by somebody who professed to be a Christian, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. What that person did to you was wrong. But, but don't let their wrong lead you to a wrong conclusion. See, don't think that just because somebody who claimed to follow Jesus hurt you, that Jesus doesn't love you for some reason. Don't think that Jesus doesn't see you. Don't think that Jesus doesn't feel the hurt that you're going through. See, in our story, what Peter did was wrong, and Jesus did not approve. What did Jesus do when he witnessed this man be hurt by somebody who was claiming to love him? Well, he corrected, he took care of Peter. But this, this man who was this bystander, this victim, he restored to him that which was taken. And he changed this man's identity from being a victim in this story who was attacked without any reason. He, he moved him from a victim to a victor by healing him. And, and and it, it, it's hard to get this, but Jesus did not cause the harm to this man. Jesus did not desire the harm to this man, but Jesus saw the harm and the harm that he experienced was actually the reason that he encountered Jesus. I'm sure that Malchus wishes that his ear had never been slashed off. I'm sure that he wishes that event never would have happened, but I'm also 
thinking that he was very glad to have met Jesus and had a personal interaction with him. How did Peter go about slashing off the ear? This is something I thought about this week. You know, because like to cut somebody's ear off, I think, you know, I don't think that's easy. How do you only cut off someone's ear? I have a sword, I'm wielding it, and I'm going to, how am I swinging this thing to just get your ear? Like, do I go slow and pop it off? Like, you know, <laughs> the three musketeers? <laughs> Did I take the sword above my head as if I'm going to make an example of this man and I'm going to split his skull? But little Malchus is quick and got out of the way. Caught that ear. Did he take it and do one of those helicopter spins and come and swing it this way? And he just slapped him upside the skull and flopped the air off? I don't know. As a kid, I always pictured it being like this, that however the ear ended up down there, you know, Jesus is like, everybody stop. And he picks up the ear and he says, Malchus, it's going to be all right. <laughs> That's how I always pictured it. <laughs> Put it back on there. <laughs> However it happened, we know this, that Malchus had an encounter with Jesus Christ that would never have happened had this harm not come. The harm was not God's desire. It's not what he wanted. But God has a way of taking whatever's happened in your life and using it to draw you to him. And when you come to him, he restores to you that which you feel was taken from you. His ear was restored. Final point I want to say today, we'll prepare to wrap with this. Number four is that Jesus is eager for communion. We didn't read this verse, but it's earlier in Luke chapter 22, and actually verse 14 and 15, it says that when the time came, this is for them to have this Passover meal, for them to eat together in the upper room. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles, they sat down together. Another translation says that Jesus reclined at the table. And Jesus said to them, can you picture this? They're finally here in this upper room and, and Jesus is in this reclined position. I don't know how to formally be reclined. I think that he was really chill, like he was at ease. And he looks at these guys and he says, boys, like, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. I don't think that he was um, saying, boys, like I'm real hungry. I can't wait to eat. Like that would be me. I think this eagerness was more than a hunger he had for this meal. I think that Jesus recognized that what his life on earth was about, the 33 years of his living was leading up to this very moment. And I'm eager to have not a Passover meal. He's been with them three years. They'd have had the Passover meal before. He's eager to have this Passover meal. And not only is he eager, I believe that humanity is eager for this meal to take place also. Because for thousands of years, man had been separated from God. For thousands of years, man could not be in God's presence. And Jesus is recognizing in this moment that I've been very eager for this, but humanity's been longing for this for thousands of years. And in fact, the heart of God has been waiting for this because this meal that we're gonna participate in 
that my Jewish brothers here understand the significance of that was back in Moses' day when they were leading the Israelites out of Egypt, that there would be an innocent animal that was killed and that the blood would be applied to the doorframe. And as it is, you would receive salvation. Jesus knew that he was representing that pure spotless lamb that was going to be slain and that the blood, if it was applied to your life, would allow you to be saved. He had the ultimate illustration. He was gonna change how they understood the Passover forever. He was eager to let them know that the old covenant of what they had that told you you ain't good enough, that you're broken and that you're sinful and that you're never gonna make righteousness. He said, we're gonna be able to get rid of an old covenant and make a new covenant in which you can be righteous, not just covered, but you can begin to produce righteousness in your life. I'm going to no longer have this old covenant that brought death. I'm gonna bring a new covenant of life. I'm so eager to have this with you and to explain to you what's getting ready to happen because it's all about to change. I don't know if you've ever been eager for something. I remember being eager for my wedding day. You know, we'd done the dating. I approved of her. She approved of me. I got down on the knee. She said, yes. We quickly told everybody we knew. And then there was wedding preparations, right? She's going and buying a dress. I'm figuring out where to rent a tux. We're figuring out how to do invite cards and what color scheme and floral scheme do you want on that? We're figuring out how to get the cake. We're getting all the things ready. And there's an anticipation. There's an eagerness. I remember waking up on the day of the wedding and it was like, it's gonna be today, but it's not till this afternoon. And and you had to wait. And and there's all the excitement. There's gonna be the first look and the photographer's gonna be there and all the family. There's an eagerness. I was looking forward to it. I couldn't wait. I think Jesus is in that same space. I don't know if you experienced the eagerness of waiting for the birth of a child. Oh, you knew it was coming. It was exciting. It's going to be here. Nine months. We hit 40 weeks. Oh, is it here yet? No. 41 weeks. Is it here yet? Where's that baby? 42 weeks. Are you going to have that baby or not? (laughs) There's an eagerness. And I think that same eagerness, that excitement for what was about to happen is where Jesus was. And in Matthew's account, here's what we read that as they were eating, lots of food being passed around, they're eating. Jesus took some bread and what he did is he blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Jesus was eager to share that this Passover meal would be the ultimate illustration and analogy of what was getting ready to happen with his upcoming death and what that would signify. That the old covenant showed us what righteousness was and that we fell short, but I am bringing a new covenant that is gonna bring new life. And the only way to experience this new life is for you and I to become one. This is my body, this is my blood. Let it become one with you. It's not something that you do on the weekends. It's not something that you do in a quiet time. No, no, we are unified and one. And there's no way to separate that from you. And so this morning, we're gonna do what the church has done for 2000 years. We're gonna participate in communion. And so Bob, if you'll come forward, if you didn't get some communion elements, just raise your hand. I've got my hand raised, I don't have any. I'm gonna need some. 
And so these are tricky. And so I will give you instructions on how these work. There are two tabs. The first one that you wanna get is the little itty bitty piece of cellophane at the top. As you pull that back, that's gonna let your bread go. And then there's gonna be a larger tab that as you pull that back, that's gonna reveal the juice. Now, some of you may be like, hey, can I participate in communion here at your church? Do I have to be a member? How does that work? Our position is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have said, Jesus, I want to follow you, I want to be a part of this new covenant that you made possible, then you are invited to participate in communion with us, no matter what your denominational background may have been. And you may say, you know what, Pastor Alex, I haven't been in church in a long time. I haven't taken communion maybe ever. But as I hear you talking about who Jesus is and that he's a way maker, I want him to be a way maker in my life. I want him to meet me where I'm at and to lead me forward into his best. And if today you're saying, you know what, I want to give my life to Jesus, then I'm inviting you to participate in communion with us. In which, as we take these, these are just elements that you're saying, I want Jesus' body to be covering me. That what he went through on the cross, I want that to be a forgiveness of sins and that his blood would cover me and that I might be considered righteous, that I might be considered a child of God. So with those instructions, would you bow your heads just for a moment and agree with me as we've just prayed, Jesus, we are so thankful that you are a way maker. God, we are so thankful that you love us enough to correct us. We're so thankful that you protect us. We're so thankful that you've brought us to this space today. And Lord, we read that you are eager for communion God, I hope that we are eager as well to relate to you, to know you, to follow you, to bow at your feet and to worship you. And so Lord, as we prepare to receive this communion, may we do it remembering the price that you paid, remembering that Lord, it was done out of love for us to give us life. And so Lord, as we prepare to take this, help us to not just go through the motions, but to be fully engaged in this act of worship. As you take the bread and hold it, remember that this was representative of Jesus' body that was broken for you. It represents the brokenness that sin has brought, but through Jesus, there can be a forgiveness. There can be a newness of life. And if you want to embrace the forgiveness that Jesus has for you, would you partake of the bread? In the same way, would you drink the cup that represents his blood that was poured out as a forgiveness of our sins? And then just quietly in this moment, would you say thank you to Jesus? Would you thank him that he never gave up on you? Would you thank him that he's protected you? Would you thank him that he's made a way in your life? Would you thank him that today you don't have to walk under the burden and the baggage of your past, but that he is a person who gives a new identity and that if you've been a victim in the past, you can become a victor today. Would you just thank him and appreciate him? Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.